big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons, Emma, Jennifer, Jen, and Kate. Welcome to the team. If you want to be like these awesome people and get access to our notes, outtakes, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash pod and prejudice. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering the fifth part of the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility with our guest, Caroline Minx. Emma Thompson is just an important person to know and just worship. It's like, it's part of our daily ritual for me is just like affirming my love for Emma Thompson. Yeah, every morning, when I wake up every morning, it's part of my skincare routine is just, (laughs) you just think about Emma Thompson for like five seconds and it like clears your skin. It's, It's amazing. I was actually just thinking that. I was like, Damn, Carol's skin looks great right now. (laughs) This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to finish out the 1995 adaptation of Sense and Sensibility by our queen, Emma Thompson. and Directed by Ang Lee. Directed by Ang Lee. You know, and like, that's important too, but... (laughs) He's only like an Oscar winning director. For sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. (laughs) We are here joined today by a return guest uh, who was with us in season one. So if you want to hear them talk about it was the 1995 Pride and Prejudice episode. Oh, my God. Episode one. Yeah. Then you can go back to that episode. But we're joined by Caroline Minx today. Hello, Caro. Hello, hello. I'm so excited to be back. Our listeners will remember that you mentioned really liking this movie in our episode back then. And we were like, well, we'll have to have you back. And here you are. I was so excited because I was like, oh, darn, I have to watch the movie again. What a shame. I better watch it twice (laughs) just to make sure my notes are really thorough. So, yeah, truly, we were watching this movie for the first time and we could not find it because it keeps jumping on and off of Hulu. Sure does. And I was like, you know what? I, I will buy this movie. I will buy it right here, right now. I don't care. I will watch it again. It's a fantastic movie. Like, I, I don't even know how many times I've seen it over the years, but it's such a good movie. Enough to be able to quote it. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, constantly. A question about the Hulu thing, though, for our listeners, because people might want to listen along with us and or watch along with us. Um, first, it was on Hulu, and we watched it on Hulu. Second, Becca bought it. But then I moved out of Becca's apartment, so then I rented it because I've been watching it, you know, many times. So I rented it with my mom, and then... I rented it by myself. And then last night I was going to go watch the last part with my girlfriend again. And I was like, oh, we're going to have to rent it. I'll log on to my computer. And she was like, well, let's just check to see if it's anywhere. And then it popped up on Hulu again. And I was like, what is happening? It's a mystery. We're not sure. It's a mystery. There's just so much demand. They they just they knew they'd get more money. It's all because of y'all. It's probably all the people who listen to the show. It must be. It must be. (laughs) Rushing. 
rushing to watch it. And they're like, we better take it off and make them rent it so we'll earn more money. Exactly. So speaking of Caro, why don't you tell the people a little bit about what you do? Okay. So hi, I'm Caroline Minx or Caro. I make way too many podcasts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like way too many. The ones that I'm probably best known for are Seen and Not Heard. Lighthearts, Hughes and Minx Ghost Detectives. I have a new one coming out, which will be out by the time, actually, because it comes out tomorrow, ah! which will be out. Yeah, it's called Silly Old Bear. And it is an adaptation of the first uh, Winnie the Pooh book by A.A. Milne. And yes. it's coming out on my son's 10th birthday tomorrow. Oh my gosh. And, which is a Tuesday. Birthday. It's a Tuesday, so it's Winnie the Pooh's day. And it's going to be so cute. We have some incredible folks in the show. I'm, I am over the moon. It is the sweetest thing. And I'm also producing an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, and Molly Woo! is Molly's in it. I am a little guest spot. Yeah, Molly is playing Anne Deberg, who talks in my production because no silent women in my podcast. Damn it! <laughs> it is queer as hell. Every single actor involved is LGBTQ plus, and the, every single character, same thing. And yeah, it's a very faithful adaptation. Otherwise, just everyone's really gay in it. Like I played Darcy, so like real gay. Hell yeah. If you read enough Jane Austen, there's a little gay in there. Yeah, it's gay. It's it's I was saying I was like, wow, making this gay was a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> just very naturally. It's it's the yearning and the stress. That's gay. Those are the two gay emotions. We only have those two. That's gay. <laughs> those are actually the two genders, right? Yeah. The yearning and the stress. Tag yourself. <laughs> yearning and stress. <laughs> Tag yourself. I'm both, which is why I'm non-binary and bisexual. <laughs> yes. Hell yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we hit on something here is what we just did. So few questions. Because Caro's been here before, I'm going to ask modified versions of our Jane Austen questions. So give us a refresher on your relationship with Jane Austen, but also update us as to if it's changed since you were last on the podcast. Yeah. Um, well, my relationship with Jane Austen is I've been a fan for kind of as long as I can remember. My mom and I especially, we really watched all the movies together and the miniseries and read the books. I am actually... I just realized I'm propping my laptop up on my complete works of Jane Austen. Aww. I didn't actually plan that, but that's delightful. Um, so yeah, definitely a super fan, which only grew as I got older and kind of like started relating to the characters even more, which is a lot of fun because I was starting to understand like, oh, that's why you were like that. <laughs> that's just adulthood. It sucks. <laughs> but yeah, my relationship with Jane Austen, I think, has changed because I have now directly adapted one of her books into another medium. And that was a fascinating experience because um, I had never done anything like that. I had certainly never done anything that retained the original language that way. I had done like, you know, like, you know, you know how like West Side Story is like like a version of Romeo and Juliet, like that kind of thing where like I would turn it into something else. But with this, it really is purely the story with the language but I had to learn how to like speak Austin a little bit for the parts that weren't directly translating to audio uh which is really where Evan Tess Murray came in because <laughs> mm -hmm. he can just do that yeah he can just open his mouth and speak Austin and I'm like I'm I'm sorry what um so <laughs> he did he was instrumental in that but getting to actually like construct a start to finish adaptation of Jane Austen, like just gave me a whole new appreciation for her. Oh, I love that. <laughs> All right. So second question we're going to ask is what's your favorite Austen character to hate? 
fucking Willoughby. So I'm very excited to be here. Oh, hell yeah. I hate hell Willoughby yeah. so much. I hate him. So- he is tied with Fanny, but like, because like, fuck Fanny. Oh, but fuck Fanny. Fuck Fanny. <laughs> but we, he gets the edge like ever so slightly just because he tricks you. Yeah. And I don't like tricksy, tricksy little rabbits. I'm not a fan. Except Lucy Steele, who's an icon. <laughs> Lucy Steele kind of rocks. She's kind of terrible. I have nothing but respect. I'm like, you know what? Hustle, Lucy. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Good for you, bitch. She's got to get the bag. Oh, yeah. And then question number three, uh, not what is your favorite Austin content, but specifically, what is your favorite Austin content for your life right now? Like what's speaking to you? And that can be what has universally spoken to you, but it can also be what's sort of like popping up in your brain right now. I mean, I feel like I always just have such a soft spot for the 2005 movie. And it has been such a a comfort watch throughout this entire pandemic. I was introduced, though, to the Lizzie Bennett Diaries by uh, Katie Yeomans got me watching it, and we watched it together. It was delightful. I didn't know anything about it going in. I didn't know what the changes were going to be. That was really fun. And so that was just kind of like a happy, fun little, like, get me through this fucking day. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, the, the 2005 movie, I just have such a, it's just so important to me. It's such a good movie. It's so good. It's so pretty. And it just, it just makes me happy. I, uh, oh, I'm not going to make this comment yet, but I am going to make a comment where I, I make, it might be a controversial statement. I'm not sure, but I have the thing that I am comparing in Sense and Sensibility to something from that movie. And I'm curious what your reactions are going to be. And I'm excited. (laughs) Very excited. (laughs) So listeners, where we were at, we had just had Colonel Brandon come in and tell Eleanor all of the stuff that he knows about Willoughby. And she was like, oh, my God, thank you. And he was like, oh, but I do believe that his intentions were honorable and just like broke my little heart. Brandon is so good. What a good person. He's so kind and so like I will at some point in this episode, I guarantee I will start tearing up talking about Brandon. But like. Can we talk about, I know this is not the part we're supposed to be talking about, but I have to address it. Do it. That he may endeavor to deserve her is the sickest fucking burn, especially when it comes from Brandon, who does not deliver sick burns. He is a nice person, but he, he was like, he can try. He won't, but he can try. (laughs) And I was like, good for you. (laughs) It's like that Lucille Bluth. Good for her. Oh, 100%. Every time I see that line, I'm just like, that's right. That's right. Get him. You know, it's interesting because I've never thought like there's, it's the language thing, right? Like Austin's language is something you have to really learn like Shakespeare. And I had never actually thought into that line like, oh, that is a sick burn. But he is literally saying he can try. He can try to deserve her. I didn't think of it that way. It's basically like I hope he realizes that she is marrying way down if they get together. Like, I mean, he, it is brutal honestly, especially because he is so gentle and mild and really is kind even to people who don't really deserve it. (laughs) So for him to even venture close to an insult is huge. He's also, can we just, Alan Rickman looks so good in this movie. He's so dashing in this movie. I was like, oh, okay. Daddy. Okay. Okay. I did watch the second Harry Potter movie after watching this, um, for the first, like the first time watching it after having seen this now and I understand what everyone means when they say they can't like see Snape 
in the movies as evil because it's Alan Rickman. It's hard just because it's Alan. He's got that voice, too, that's so, like, even when he's being terrible and saying terrible things, he has, like, the most soothing voice. Yeah, he is very soothing. I love him. Okay. <laughs> We're doing so well. Okay. Oh, thriving. So, immediately <laughs> after he tells this to Eleanor, something that the movie changes up is that Eleanor goes to Marianne and tells her, so Willoughby's a trash bag, but he did love you. And Marianne says, but not enough. And this part really broke me. And also, it was such an interesting choice because in the book, she spends so much time wallowing with Eleanor knowing this thing and not being sure whether or not to tell her that he actually did love her. You're you're mixing things up a bit because the thing is Eleanor doesn't know at this point in the book either because Willoughby delivers the line I loved her back then uh, in the book. So instead here you get the revelation and sort of the the whole scope of the story. And what is interesting is that Marianne's pain in the book is very much, oh, the man I loved was a scoundrel. I was duped. I was gaslit. And that makes her fall into this big spiraling, wallowing depression. But it just feels like she got played. Um, Here, her pain is a little different. It's, wow, um, this man loved me, but not enough to be selfless for me. Not be a trash bag. Yeah. Right. It makes it worse. It's really sad. It's really sad because she's still putting the blame like fully on herself. I guess she's like, oh, I he didn't love me enough. And she's doing that thing that I think women are often conditioned to do. Generally speaking, this is of all people to be speaking in a binary terms. But I mean, <laughs> but it's true. Like we anyone who's a woman or like raised as like you're very much conditioned to be like, oh, this relationship isn't going well. What am I doing wrong? What what are they receiving from me that is wrong? And like, where was I falling short? Can you tell I've been going to therapy? But like, that is one of those things where it's really well illustrated, I think, with Marianne. It's such a good example of that because like in the book and in the movie, you see that very much both times where she's like, she's still trying so hard. And it's like, honey, it's just not going to work out. But it's so hard to see it when you're in it. And she's so she's such a good example of the way that even when you know it was toxic and not right and not good, you still had very real love with this person. You still had really good experiences with this person. And it's you can't just drop it. It doesn't just go away. And it's it's so sad. <laughs> It's so sad. I think it's really easy to write Marianne off as being like dramatic and being very, you know, like, oh, my God, Marianne, get over it. You know, he was bad. He was awful. Why are you still wallowing? But it's like this movie, I think, demonstrates it really well. She is hurting so much. And it's like easy to kind of laugh when they do these like everyone is crying bits that they do that were very, very funny. But it's still like that girl is her heart is busted. And she's so young. And this is like first love screwing her over. And she's such a believer in first love. It just makes it so sad. Yeah. And I think that something that the movie does really well is because they placed this revelation earlier on, it gives her more time to grow. And I'll talk about this later, which I think will probably be in our next little little mini section. But I think that she comes to her own conclusions as opposed to in the book, Eleanor giving her 
a little nudge. Um, and I'll talk about this later, but I, I think that it gives her so much room to grow and like grow through this pain. So good work on this film. Oh, so agreed. And it just makes the payoff so much better in the end where it's like, ah, we've gotten to the point where, yes, this makes sense. Anyway, that's getting way ahead, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we <laughs> But it's true. <laughs> yes. So then we cut to Lucy coming to visit Eleanor. And this made me cackle. She comes in and she's like, oh my gosh, how are you? I heard about Marianne. I do not know what I would do if a man treated me with so little respect. And then she just bites her lip. She's like, ah. <laughs> she's like, it's like the Michael Scott meme in the office where he like bites his lip and he's like, ah. yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, she, that actor is so good as Lucy. She's phenomenal. They also, I really like what they do with Lucy in the movie where it's like, she doesn't, you trust her more in the movie because you're like, oh, she's sweet. But then she does these little glances sometimes where she's like, she'll say something because I glance at Eleanor to get her reaction. And Eleanor isn't seeing it, but we are. And we're like, hmm, mm, you know what you're doing. It's interesting because I think the movie really does like sweeten her up a little bit. And uh, it goes one of two ways. I mean, some... I, I tend to think the movie kind of makes her, I, I like the more evil Lucy, but I'm more drawn to like the very evil female characters. I love them. They're so fun. But I think it's interesting. Part of the reason they do that here is to justify her naivete in telling Fanny later on, which is something Anne does in the book. Yeah, which is one of my favorite scenes. We will get there. That is probably one of my favorite scenes in this movie i'm so excited it's so everything about it it's a scene study it's delightful it truly is but yeah they really do gentle her a lot they soften her a lot and she doesn't come across as shrewd she comes across more as like just kind of a normal nice girl but who does know what she's doing when she says certain things i think the shrewdness is much more hidden yeah it's there. Yeah. There's almost a hope on her part, a more honest hope that she and Edward are in love in the movie than there is in the book. Absolutely. Yes. Fully agreed. Um, and I think that comes through really strongly in this scene where she, <laughs> the next thing that happens is one of my favorite quotes and it might be my, one of my favorite <laughs> line deliveries where she's like, oh my God, you'll never guess what happened or, or you cannot possibly guess what happened. And Eleanor is like, no, cannot. And then she says that she's met Mrs. Ferrers. And she's like, oh, I haven't seen Edward yet, but I expect to very soon. And then who should enter but Edward Ferrers? She summoned his ass. She summoned him. Oh, the record scratch, though. The record oh. scratch that plays across her face when the maid comes in and is like, I'm Mr. Edward Ferris to see you, Miss Dashwood. And Lucy goes like, <gasps> the way that Edward's intestines just like jump into his throat when he sees those women. I literally wrote the way Edward's stomach drops when he sees Lucy. <laughs> I wrote the panic on Edward's face. <laughs> also, I gotta say like Hugh Grant is one of those actors who I'm I'm not all like I like Hugh Grant, but I'm not necessarily like, ooh, I gotta see this. Hugh Grant is in it. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. I don't seek him out, but I like him when he's in stuff. Yeah. I fucking love him as Edward. He's perfect. Perfect casting. He is so cute and dear and darling and he's very sweet like all the stuff with margaret early in the movie also i love how everyone is so cute with margaret like all the all the adults in this movie are so cute with her and like all the like brandon saluting her and shit so fucking cute emma thompson literally makes it the litmus test for which men we're supposed to like mm -hmm. she's like oh he's nice to margaret yep like him yep and it works beautifully because it's one of those things that like if you're looking for it, you'll see it. But yeah, I, I felt it. Like, you felt 
you felt that moment of he's just like, oh my god, I want the earth to swallow me. <laughs> like this whole scene. And then Marianne comes in and is just earnestly so happy to see him and everybody else in the room is about to just like disintegrate into the floor. And Marianne has no idea. She like runs in. She's like, oh my god, Edward. And everyone else is like, uh, and he's she's like, why didn't you come visit us before? And he's like, uh, I was uh, otherwise <laughs> otherwise engaged. Oh, when he said I've been much engaged elsewhere, it's like, yeah, I bet you have. Uh-huh. <laughs> he has been engaged elsewhere. Just saying. <laughs> Deliberate words. And Marianne, when he says that, she's like, she's like, how could you possibly be engaged elsewhere when there's such friendship to be had here? And Lucy turns to Marianne she's like you must think that nobody keeps their engagements whether like big or small and Marianne just she doesn't even say anything she's like oh you know Edward keeps all of his engagements this scene is the one time I think she really shows her little asshole side Mm -hmm. you know what I mean because like it's half a compliment to Edward like oh you're just not used to men being so good he's so good but it's also like "Mm, your choice in men really fucking blows Marianne I mean like it is I was like, that is mean, Lucy. Like, that is a mean line. It was really mean. But that part, the part right after she says that and Marianne says, well, Edward is, he's the least incapable of being selfish or the least capable of being selfish of men that I know or whatever. All three of those women turn to look at him in unison, but they all three have different expressions on their face. Marianne is just like, right, Edward? And then Eleanor is like, oh my God, please bury me. And then Lucy is like, mm-hmm. And it is just poor Edward. I mean, and bless his heart because his reactions are always just both light and freeze and he can't do both, but he wants to. Yeah. He wants his body to stay and his soul to go and that's not an option. What's that animal that like goes paralyzed when it's afraid? Like, I feel like it's something mice do. Like deer in a headlight? Oh, there's those fainting goats that just pass the fuck out. Yes, that's that's Edward. That's what he wants. He just wants to be a fainting goat. He just wants to be unconscious, yeah. He wants an out. He wants to, like, cease to exist for just, like, five minutes. Oh, God, am I going to do a Sense and Sensibility characters as goats, friend? Yes. (gasps) Oh, my God, you have to. You have to. You must. And it's going to go. It's going to go with our potato thread. Yes, it's happening. Great. Good. So this scene is just basically pretty much a word for word what happens in the book. Like, this, this moment is very on point. Edward, after some like awkward silence, gets up and says he has to leave. And Lucy's like, okay, well, you can escort me back to your sister's house. And he is just like, okay, good. He's like, great, awesome. And then Marianne turns to Eleanor and she's like, why were you so cold to him? Eleanor is like, he probably had his reasons for leaving. And she's like, yeah, because he thinks you hate him now. And then she walks away and poor Eleanor is just sitting on the couch like, fuck me. Oh, Yes. Eleanor breaks my heart every other scene in this movie. She just... Ugh. Emma Thompson brings it because it's... At, like, on one hand, you really understand where she's coming from. On on the other hand, you're like, girl, reach out. It's so frustrating. Yeah. That's the thing that I love about this story is, like, both sisters have a point. Mm-hmm. They absolutely have a point, And they make the point that it is okay to be on either end of the spectrum as long as you can meet other people in the middle when it's necessary. Right. And that's just important. That's just good life advice. If you are like extremely one thing or the other, most people you meet are going to be kind of in the middle of that spectrum. And so you have to be able to like kind of meet people where they're at. And so much of this story is about them figuring out how to do that. And those little moments where she's like, where Marianne is frustrated with her. And it's like, yeah, same a little bit. Like you never want to be frustrated with Emma Thompson. Emma, I'm sorry. But like, Oh, my God. (laughs) 
But Eleanor Dashwood is a goddamn liar. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to shake her a little, like, just rattle it loose, man. Come on. Mm-hmm. Ugh, say words. Say words. And she does later, which we'll get to. But for now, we're at our, all of our favorite scenes, I think, maybe. Um. <laughs> I mean, it depends on what you're going for, because if you want, like, emotional damage, this is not the scene. But if emotional you want- Emotional damage. Emotional oh, damage. Damage. This part is the, but if you close your eyes- Yes. And then the next, the next half of the movie, emotional like the, damage—it's just emotional damage. It was so funny because, like, this—the section that we're covering today is like forty-five minutes long, right? And it's at the tail end of a two and a half hour long movie, and it's like plotting along, all nice and neat. And then I, I was like, wait, there's twenty minutes left, and most of the plot is about to happen. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This I was gonna say this back end of this movie is so action-packed. This is where it all happens. So much happens. Like, at breakneck speed. (laughs) But, like, it's still paced well. Yeah. How did they do that? Because they genuinely crammed so much into the end. But it doesn't feel rushed. Emma Thompson's just a genius, I guess. Ang Lee did all right, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Ang Lee. Sorry. Ang Lee was there, I guess. The thing is, Ang Lee is really responsible for the pacing. The the witty dialogue and the characterizations of characters that got fleshed out and some of the, like, cuts to the story, that's Emma Thompson. But if we want to talk about the pacing, the visuals, the swelling music and the captured intimacy, that is Ang Lee. That Patrick Doyle fucking music, man. Oh, I love this movie, too, because I really love Much Ado About Nothing that has Emma Thompson in it. Very good. And it feels like it's um, like those two movies feel like they're in the same universe in a lot of ways. They do. They really do. Like when they're throwing the coins at the end. That's me giving away the ending. But when they're throwing the coins at the end, it felt very much like you're going to hear sigh no more, lady, sigh no more, like happening in the background. Uh, uh, I love that movie, actually. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films, or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. 
To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now, back to this episode. Back to this movie. We cut to Fanny and Lucy at Fanny's house. First of all, what is Fanny doing? She's got, like, some feathers, and she's just, like, stroking them. She's so fucking weird. (laughs) It's because she doesn't have, like, a cat to stroke and be evil. But she has a dog. Yeah, but, like, it makes it... You gotta have something kind of finicky. Yeah. This was a little movie magic, and we'll get to this, but I have thoughts on the dog. Oh, good. So Lucy has the dog, and she's, like giving it little scritches and like kind of trying to hold it there and fanny is just like stroking some feathers and like maybe maybe making a hat but it doesn't really look like a hat and lucy's just talking about how she's never gonna marry anyone because she has no dowry and fanny's like oh you'll be fine you're such a good person you'll marry far beyond your expectations and then lucy gets this little glint in her eye and like you think like it does seem like she really does believe that this is the move and she's like well there is a young man, uh, but his family would oppose the match. And Fanny's like, oh, as soon as they'll see you, they'll approve. And then <laughs> the, the camera is like zooming in on each of their faces as it goes back and forth. It's like, first Lucy, zoom in dramatically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of not to go TikTok again, but it's like, he looked at me. And I looked that, at that's him. this scene. That's this scene. <laughs> that's definitely a reel to make, Molly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they keep getting closer and closer, it's like, is one of them going to bite the other one? Yes, actually. And then kind of. And then kind of. So then Lucy's like, well, uh, if you really think that, she like leans in and whispers to Fanny and Fanny screams. It's immediate. It's like, Viper in my bosom. (laughs) It's immediate. And she just goes for her and just chokes. And it's perfect. She pinches her nose to get her out the door. Like she's trying to get a kid to take medicine. Like, what is going on? Here's the reasons I love this scene. First of all, it's immediate and shocking and phenomenal. There's no processing. It's it's like a visceral moment. She says, I am silent as the grave. And then the next thing she does is scream. <laughs> it is Shakespearean. It is so over the top. But also what I love is the implication that Fanny is always this close to actual homicide. <laughs> So here's my question. There's a tiny, beautiful little dog in Lucy's hands, and it is not the dog's fault that Fanny owns the dog. The dog seems to be thriving, having a good time, taking advantage, gold digging. And Lucy doesn't exactly put the dog on the floor. So then we flash to Fanny, absolutely slamming body slamming Lucy into a wall. Where did this cute little weird ass dog go? Did she out the fucking window? (laughs) Dog go flying or something? That dog is on the streets of London somewhere now. Just like get me the fuck out. (laughs) That dog is free. He's gonna have the equivalent of like the incredible journey. (laughs) It's gonna be London. If one of our listeners who's good at drawing wants to draw a picture of this little dog flying out of Lucy's arms as Fanny attacks her, I would appreciate it forever. He's the first dog in space. Oh my god, tragic though. Listen, the real story is that this dog was definitely out of the shot by the time that this fight happened and it was clearly like holding the dog to like create the aesthetic and then the dog somehow was taken out of the shot and there was some movie glitch where they didn't account for the dog being taken 
like being put down and like walking away or whatever. But it's like they forgot like the dog is not a cat. You can't just like open your arms and have it fly out. <laughs> exactly. So like in my head, Lucy just like plops down the dog and the dog kind of like scampers off or whatever. But it it's not confirmed. And the other part of me is like, where did that dog go? That dog flew. That dog is 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 gone. I love the image of of Fanny just temporarily blacking out. And just like whacking the dog out of her hands as she goes for her nose, like ah! <laughs> she hits her nose, I lost my shit because it was so funny. Like that is the funniest, weirdest possible move you could make to get someone to leave your home. I know is to pinch their nose, like what? Also, like I know that they probably are on the first floor, and she kicks her out the front door or like a side door. It sure looks like she's gonna just throw her off the balcony. It looks like she's throwing her out the window. It does, right? Like, it looks like they're on the second floor. I I thought the implication was that they were on the second floor and that she was trying to throw her out the window. That's what it seemed like. So where is my shot of Lucy, like, getting over the balcony and climbing down, like, the trellis? Like, her chasing her out, and Lucy's, like, dangling from the balcony, like, okay, okay, okay. Fanny's like, climb for it, bitch. <laughs> The best part of the scene, though, is that it ends with a flash to Mrs. Jennings legitimately jogging through London in the pursuit of gossip. Yes, she is running and she runs, 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 runs up to the Dashwood girls. And she's like, oh, my God, you'll never believe it. Edward Ferrers is engaged to Lucy Steele. And then she runs back away. And and this is a good segue into the next scene in which. Marianne turns to Eleanor and sees the lack of response on her face. And she's like, how long have you known? And Eleanor is like, since we came to London. And Marianne is like, why didn't you tell me? She's so mad at that part, too. And like, I love that Eleanor kind of got a moment to really stand firm and be like, look, not everyone is you. You need to understand that. Not everyone is you. And your way of processing things is not the one and only correct way. Which is really important because, again, this this book, this story is so much about, like, people on different ends of this spectrum of how you can be and process information. And Eleanor spends a lot of time being very much an observer, more of a passive. She does things. She's got a lot of agency and a lot of, um, she does a lot. But she's quieter and a lot more behind the scenes. Whereas Marianne is like, set a stage me, you know. And it's like, it's that introvert, extrovert thing. <laughs> Absolutely. This is one of my favorite lines from the movie when Marianne says, where is your heart, Eleanor? And she goes to touch her face in what is a sweet moment. And Eleanor just can't stand it and goes, what do you know of my heart? What do you know of anything but your own suffering? For weeks, Marianne, I've had this pressing on me without being being at liberty to speak of it to a single creature. It was forced on me by the very person whose prior claims ruined all my hope. I have endured her exaltations again and again whilst knowing myself to be divided from Edward forever. Believe me, Marianne, had I not been bound to silence, I could have provided proof enough of a broken heart, even for you. Oh, that. That last bit was such a good... It put Marianne very much in her place, which she needed. Yes. Because Marianne is being very unfair and very unkind. Because mm-hmm. Eleanor was like, I wasn't going to just blab what someone, no matter what I feel about this person, and no matter what I feel about the person that they're talking about, she's not going to just break someone's confidence. Right. Which is generally speaking, the right ethical way to go about that. Like if someone tells you something in confidence, you need to keep it there. And, you know, Eleanor is it, the fact that she's like, 
yeah, sorry I didn't perform sadness correctly for you. Mm-hmm. It's so good. To play devil, devil's advocate on Marianne's side, because I do agree that Marianne needs a reality check and Eleanor deserved her moment to, you know, show her up a little bit. Yeah. I do think that part of Marianne's indignation here is the idea that Marianne has been leaning on Eleanor and she basically is like, wait, you didn't tell me that that was a mean thing to do. You didn't tell me that you were going through something. I could have helped. Yeah, I think Marianne is very hurt. And she and it is that thing where it's like, you're hurt and you're absolutely valid to feel like, why why didn't you trust me enough to let me in? I'm hurt by this. But it is still like, she's still kind of making it about herself there. And it's understandable why. It's to, and, it, and her feeling there of like, I've been telling you everything. Why didn't you tell me anything? Like, that's hard. Right. Well, that's something that they talk about earlier when she's like yeah we neither of us have anything to conceal me because I disguise nothing in you because you conceal or you reveal nothing or you you don't say yeah I texted that quote to a friend of mine who's very much like an Eleanor if I'm a Marianne uh (laughs) I was like this movie just read us both I did this today I texted them I was like hey, I have a present for you and it's being read like a book. <laughs> um, and they were like, what is this? And I told them and they were like, okay, ow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, truly. Two other things about this scene. One is when Eleanor is leaning against the door and she's like, I did my duty. I didn't break the confidence of Lucy because she asked me not to. That, I just realized this now, but like, that's what Edward's doing. Yes. By doing his duty. And she says, she's leaning against the door and she's like, he will be, he will rest easy knowing that he's doing his duty and he's, and like, he might not be happy. She says he might have some, and then she like stutters over it. She says regrets, but he's going to have done his duty and kept his word. And like, they both care so much about that. And that makes them a really good couple. Uh. I know their values are so aligned. Their values are so aligned. And then the other thing is that there's a line in this scene that I think the movie added where she says to Marianne, when Marianne is like getting all riled up about it, she's like, would you have him treat her any worse than Willoughby treated you? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Carol, you've listened to our podcast, correct? Oh, yeah. So you've been listening to Molly's takes on whether or not Edward is garbage or compost? Yes. Oh, yeah. This oh, is yeah. the point I've been trying to make molly about his compost that's what makes him compost i would go as far to say i don't really think he's either i think he's a lot nicer than both of those things no no he is he's a disaster he's in a pickle is he the oldest i can't remember if yeah he's he's the the oldest yeah that's why he's yeah he's absolutely part of this book is about like the pressures that men face in these societies specifically the pressures of the firstborn versus the flaws in the life of the second born because you have Brandon whose life gets totally messed up by his older brother and then you have Edward whose life is terrible because he's the eldest brother and so and then you have Robert who kind of gets the best of both worlds because of his circumstance his luck and the fact that he was born second to this wealthy family and he was favored so this story is obviously mostly about the the misfortunes of women in this time period, but it's also very much about the misfortunes of men bound this, by this society as well. And Edward is like an encapsulation of that, as is Brandon, but, you know. Well, in the movie, we don't really get the Brandon brother story. Yes, they do cut so. that out, so, so it resonates less in the movie. It's one of those three lines that doesn't quite make it through. Which makes sense in the context of this movie. And it makes sense for the amount of time they had to do this movie. 
Uh, but it is one of those things where I'm like, ooh, that would have really driven that point home even more. But it, I think it still comes across. But yeah, it it's so much of this movie is about like basically just having to deal with your siblings' bullshit. <laughs> Which, boy, do I know about that. Sorry, brother, if you're listening. But like, <laughs> dude, dude, you put me through hell, my guy. <laughs> yes. You could also read it as being about sort of the fact that you put each other through crap because you don't see the world perfectly and you love each other. Yeah. That's true for Marion and Eleanor. Less true for Edward, Fanny, and Robert. They they don't love each other as much. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it does also... I mean, if you want to talk about, like, sibling relationships and, and kind of family culture... This is me going off on a bit of a tangent. But if you talk about, like, the culture of family and how every household is kind of its own little society. Um, you look at the functionality of the Dashwoods versus the dysfunction of the Bears, which is, oh boy, a lot. Um, it's just, it just kind of drives home the point like, hey, families should maybe like talk to each other, try to be nice to each other, <laughs> at least sometimes. Because otherwise you end up with, like someone like Fanny happens. Mm-hmm. Fuck Fanny. Fuck, Fuck Fanny. Fanny. I hate her so much. I do love the actor. The actor is so good and she's in Ted Lasso and I just can't stop saying it. I love her so much. I have loved her in everything I've ever seen her and she's fantastic. She's one of those actors who like, I can never remember, remember her name. But when I see her, I'm like, oh, it's her. I love her. Like, Harriet Walters. Thank you. I knew it was something with an H. I was going to say Helen, but I was like, that's I know. Not. I was like, Helen Mirren. Nope. Wrong. Sorry, ma'am. <laughs> um, no, but she's so good. And she does these fascinating vocal things that I have tried to imitate in my career as an actor and have never quite gotten. Her voice is Fanny. I was like, it's so good. And it's so Fanny. Oh, yeah. Like, she does this jaw thing that I can't quite. It's like she's sucking her teeth the whole movie. She's like those people from, like, Connecticut who, like, don't move their mouth because they don't want to wrinkle. Yeah. Yeah. They're always from Connecticut. I could be wrong. Sorry if you're from Connecticut and you move your face when you talk. But, like, everyone from (laughs) Connecticut I've ever met, like, doesn't. And I've met, like, a few. They don't move their fucking faces. Interesting. (laughs) It's like they're trying not to crack. And I'm like, are you okay? Pressure like a drip, 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 blow. Well, pressure will give you wrinkles. That's true. Though, a few more things about this scene and the sisterly relationship and what we were talking about with them meeting each other in the middle in terms of like what extreme they're on in their sense or their sensibilities, for example. Oh, Another it's in little. The title. It's in the title. It's in the title. It's in the title. It's in the title. Another line that hit me in this scene was. Eleanor saying, it is bewitching to think of one's happiness depending entirely on one person, but it's not always possible. And that's something that Marianne really has to come to learn in these movies. And this is Eleanor just saying, like, this is what I've learned and what you need to learn. I feel like Marianne is the kind of person who wants to be like, my partner is my best friend. And Eleanor is the kind of person who's like, my partner is my partner. They don't have to be my best friend. My best friend can be my best friend. Right. Yeah, it's the um, it's the person who believes that love is a destination versus the person who believes love is a journey. Yes, 100%. That was beautiful. That is so good. Yeah. But it's true. I think and I think that a lo- I think that is the downfall of a lot of relationships is trying to be absolutely everything for each other when that's it's just not generally possible. Like you just you need other 
people, because sometimes that one person who you love more than anything is driving you fucking nuts and you need someone to talk to about it. So, you know, kill each other. You also need to be able to be happy on your own. Like you need, you have to be a full, complete person and have that other person add something to your happiness, not complete your happiness. They can't create it. They can be, they can't be your whole life. They should be a good part of your life. Exactly. Yes. And that's, that's why I always have issue with people who are like, oh, you complete me. Like, oof, no, 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 I am not a missing puzzle piece. That's very sweet. But like, don't, please don't ever refer to me as like a missing piece in your life. Cause that makes me feel like what happens if I'm gone someday? Are you going to be okay? It's like, it adds some pressure, like a drip, drip, drip. To be fair, they are definitely quoting the movie Jerry Maguire. Oh, yeah, 100%. But it is a thing that people, like, like do say. They'll be like, oh, he completes me, or she's she's the, the thing I was missing. Or, my like, better half, the, my other half. Yeah, they're they're my other half. And I'm like, it's sweet. And I, I understand. Some people will say it, and I'm like, I know what you mean. But some people say it, and I'm like, I think you genuinely think that you are half a person without this other person. Right. And I think that is Marianne at the beginning of this for sure. And Eleanor is more of the extreme of the opposite of that. Well, I I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think with Eleanor, it's very much the idea like, oh, even if this is completely right for me and like the healthy, perfect thing for me in my life, I I shouldn't have it because it's just not what society's dictating where you need to be able to be a little selfish every now and again. And at, at the end of the day, it turns out that Eleanor did have someone there who wanted, who was going to make her happier and that she was sort of forsaking it through no fault of her own. But it's interesting. This is, again, the idea that these two characters swap. It's interesting to me that Marianne had to learn the lesson and Eleanor had to unlearn the lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's there's so much to this story. Yeah. And at the end of this scene, Marianne, I think. So after after Eleanor bursts out with this this thing that she says and like really puts Mary in her place, but it's all about her own her own feelings at last. Marianne then starts crying and Eleanor then has to go and comfort her, even though she's clearly the one crumbling. And to me, that shows that Marianne's not there yet. Yeah, she's getting there, but she is not meeting her sister in the middle yet um, because she can't handle being told how wrong she was Mm -hmm. then we cut to Eleanor and Brandon walking down the park I have so many things to say about this do say do say do tell it's mostly just about how I have said before that you can compare Brandon to Darcy in a lot of ways and this scene is the one I think the most for a lot of reasons. They, they both have unbelievable generosity. Yes. And, and, and he's doing this without any expectation of anything. He's just like, well, this is, he's a nice person and this needs to happen. And this is the right thing to do. And I can help. So it's like, it, it, I think they both view generosity as logic. Yeah. And I, I, I do think in this scene, at least though, uh, the difference, well, actually this isn't so different from the way Darcy is generous as well, but Brandon's clearly like kind of triggered by the whole experience because his family ruined his life because of the classless marriage thing. Yeah. He's extremely empathetic and that has sometimes been his downfall, but it's also like, it's an incredible strength when you know how to, because I think people who are very empathetic and tend to feel for others really, really hard. It's really easy to get wrapped up in that and caught up in it. And that has, of course, caused some problems in the past. But when, as you get a little older and learn from experience and you can kind of 
step back for a minute and be like, okay, what is a way I can use all these things I'm feeling constructively? That's what he's, that's the point he's at now in his life. He clearly feels things incredibly deeply and he clearly takes things incredibly personally. And I don't mean that in that like, oh, he's, he's so easily wounded way. I just mean he tends to apply situations he's seeing to what he's experienced himself. That's why he understands things and understands what needs to be done. But he's such a good example of like how you learn from painful experiences and you can use that to pay it forward. Yeah. Yeah. In case our listeners haven't haven't recently watched the movie, this is the what we're talking about is the scene in which he offers the living. Well, he doesn't he doesn't offer the living, but he asks Eleanor to ask Edward if he wants the living. And it's like he doesn't know. He doesn't know that Eleanor loves Edward. He's just trying to be courteous to Edward because he's like, I don't want him to feel uncomfortable. I want to try and make this. I want him to take me up on this. So I feel like this is the best way to present it. Like, he's so considerate. (laughs) He's so considerate. And Eleanor just, she just doesn't know what to do. And you can see it all over her face where she's like, oh my God, he's trying to be nice. He's trying to be nice. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But she also knows that she should. That scene made me so happy because I was like, they're going to be brother and sister-in-law and they're just going to have the best time. Like, it just makes me so happy. Quick question. <laughs> are you are you on Molly's team or my team on the whole Brandonora front? Okay, so the, where I am on that is they make logical sense and that's it. Like, I can see them working. If they were to be a couple, they would absolutely be a functional, loving, healthy couple. But that's not, there, there's a bit missing there. Like, they would be a fantastic team. But so your answer is that you're on my team. Yeah, <laughs> I think I am. Sorry, Molly. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I have lots of feelings about it throughout this next <laughs> section of the film. I just love Brandon. I want him to be with everyone. I just want him to be happy. For sure. I just want him to be happy. And 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 I think that the movie really leaves out uh, the chemistry between them, which I think is thick. That's actually fair. The movie does cut out a bunch of stuff where it's like, ooh. Like, will they, won't they? And actually, in particular, this is relevant in the next scene because in the next scene, Edward comes to see Eleanor and he's like, and we'll get there in a second, to what I think about Brandon in this part, but Edward comes in and he's like, Miss Dashwood, uh, you must think I'm a total asshole. And she's like, no, 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 please, like, don't even, let's, let's not, let's not, it's too painful. So she's like, sit down. She offers him the living from Brandon and he's like, Brandon, like offering me the living, can it be possible? Like, why is he doing that? It must be because you told him to. And Eleanor's like, no, not at all. This is just for your own merit. And I just think that this scene would be so much more interesting if he was like wait are you in love with Brandon and there was that added layer that there was in the book which was him being jealous that Eleanor and Brandon have been hanging out that like she's being his messenger that she's you know over him and like is trying to get him married off to Lucy Steele like I just think it would have added another layer to the scene. It heightens the tension in the book when Edward believes that Eleanor is with Brandon. That being said, I do think that there's a different vibe to this scene now, which is this quiet despair that they both sit in together over what is like supposedly good news. This scene is so brilliantly filmed because it's just head on, the two of them looking at each other, no music, just silence. And then this all happens. And then he says, 
your friendship has been the most important of my life. And then she says, you will always have it. And then he says, forgive me. And then she says, you honor your promises. That is more important than anything else. And then, and then they, and then they stand up and she says, I wish you both very happy. They just love each other so much. It, the thing with that too, that scene, the thing that is so painful for me, having, I have been in the situation where there has been a ridiculous amount of love from both angles and we just can't figure it out and we've done the whole like I love you so much you are the best friend in the world your friendship is so important to me you're such an important person and where would I be without you like we're doing that conversation we're not saying the thing or we have said the thing and we've had the conversation but you're pretending that you haven't said the thing uh-huh. yeah and it is rough ooh, so ooh. anyone who's ever been in that situation watching that scene it's like a knife to the liver it is rough <laughs> like it is rough it's a great example I think just from like a director's point of view like I had my director hat on watching that I was like it's done so well where they are so close but if they reach their arms out they like might not quite touch you know like if they were weaker people they would be kissing Mm -hmm. like they would just not be able to hold it together or or one of them would say something but they are the amount of control you can see it in their jaws the tension that they are trying to hold back what they want to say and their body language is so tense and tight and they're trying to be casual and positive and supportive and all they just want to do is say fuck this like I love you but it's so hard my heart I love this movie so much I do think that's where we're ending the the first episode on this movie yeah it is what a good note to end on all right Carol do you have anything to plug I it sounds like you have everything to plug but (laughs) oh god I kind of plugged everything at the morning um your socials yeah okay so my socials you can find me on twitter at saucy minks that's m-a-n-c-k-s and i'm on there a lot so that's where you'll probably find me and yeah i've got uh check out silly old bear because that's my newest show that's coming out if you love winnie the pooh which you should i don't know anyone who says I don't like Winnie the Pooh. I've never met someone who doesn't like Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, that would be red flag. That's a red flag. Yeah, if someone doesn't like Winnie the Pooh, that's a red flag for me. No, but like, I love Winnie the Pooh. By the time this episode drops, that will already be out. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it should. uh, The plan is to do um, a monthly episode. So we're doing each story is. Yeah, so it's going to go on for like, there's 10 episodes. So we've got almost a year of Winnie the Pooh content coming your way. <laughs> Amazing. And Queer Pride and Prejudice is going to probably come out. It's it's a little bit delayed because life um it's also like 27 people being wrangled in one project, so it's a lot. And uh but that's probably going to come out in late spring early summer. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us again and until next time, stay proper and find yourself someone to sit with in quiet despair. <laughs> on it. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us, or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.